This week we're going to read from Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which we will ju- he, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aragopi, Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. Already made mention that we are in the middle of an Advent series. We're in our third of four weeks leading up to Christmas ultimately when we will celebrate the coming of Emmanuel, uh, God with us in, uh, in the incarnation, coming of Jesus Christ to take on flesh and dwell among his people, and do the work of redemption. Uh, this week we are uh, remembering, uh, the, the continuing this series in the echoes of a voice, and we remember that it's by God's own word that we have revelation about who God is. Who is this God that has come to dwell among us? It's, it's by God's word that we know God. But we also, in this series, have been reflecting on how the longings that are often shared among humanity in a variety of cultures and a variety of circumstances, that in these places we have what N.T. Wright calls a sort of echo of the voice of God. Now, we can't trust our longings as authoritative any more than we can trust the echo of a voice. We would do well to pay attention to the voice itself, to hear the voice face-to-face, voice-to-voice, hear clearly. But in humanity's shared longings, as we look at the longings of humanity and really these variety of cultures and circumstances, we can discover a question that the voice of God himself in in his revelation, according to his word, that he alone can truly answer. We discover a desire that only our creator can satisfy. I think this is particularly poignant in our text this morning that we've already had read among us. These echoes that are common to humanity, just list four of them that we're looking at in this series, longing for justice, hunger for relationships, quest for spirituality, and delight in beauty. This morning, 
we explore this quest for spirituality. The spirituality, now there's a word that pretty much has no definition. I mean, what do we mean by that? And I would offer just a, a little bit of an introduction by examining spirituality and reality. All right, what is the relationship between spirituality and reality? And I would make two statements about spirituality and reality to help to orient us here at the beginning of our time. The first is this. The word spiritual is not a code word for not real. All right? The word spiritual is not a code word for not real. We tend to think of spiritual as either big philosophical ideas or maybe deep feelings and emotions. But spiritual is actually that which is both real and unseen. That which is real and unseen. This is something we have a hard time with in our, in our sort of modern environment that still, we still cling to, even though we've moved on to postmodernism and post-postmodernism and then just post-everything. Um, we still cling to this sort of modern idea that if you can't see it, it's not really real. If you, and at least you have to be able to see it through some scientific theory at least, in order for it to be real. But reality is both that which is tangible and accessible to what we can see, hear, and touch, perhaps even theorize about. But the idea that is so common among us is that there is no real reality beyond that. But the fact is there is also that which is spiritual. These are matters about which we have some sense that there is something real beyond what we can see, hear, and touch. And so to truly understand these spiritual things, if we can't see it, hear it, and touch it, these spiritual matters have to be revealed to us, have to somehow invade our experience of reality in the, see, in the sight and hearing and touch so that we can have some access to that which is spiritual. And so we look to revelation. This is what we're talking about this morning. The way that we know something about what we can't see, hear, and touch is by means of revelation. It's by revelation uh, that we know spiritual things because God is spirit. And because God made all things, including all that which is spiritual in creation. In creation. God made the heavenly places. Can't see it with our eyes, but he made it. God made the angels, and to my knowledge, I have never seen an angel, but God made the angels. And God made not only our body, but God made our mind, our soul. I've never seen my soul. I asked my kids the other day as we were spending time thinking about these things in the morning, and just asked them, can you describe your soul to me? Go for it. Give it a try. Tell me about your soul. If someone says, how is it with your soul? You, I mean, what are the words <laughs> that you say there? But man, I know there's something there. I've never seen my soul, but I know that there is something about me that you can't see and I can't see either. 
But here's the deal. The, the spiritual does not mean that it is not real. It just means that it is unseen. Secondly, a focus on the spiritual is not an invitation to dualism. I just want to dispel this for a second. For those of you who are familiar with dualism, it's this danger uh, among those who acknowledge spiritual things to begin to think of spiritual things as good and valuable and to think of physical things as evil and of no value. And physical things will one day not be needed at all and only spiritual things would remain. Friends, let me just say at the outset, that is a denial of the resurrection. All right? Fundamentally, it's a denial of the incarnation. It means that God became, well, bad. That's what we celebrate in incarnation. If physical things are by definition evil things, not good things, things of no value. There are many things in Scripture that combat this idea. God made both the physical and the spiritual. And when he created all things, he looked at all things, and what did he say? It's very good. Very good. Secondly, most importantly, God has taken on physical flesh in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he did not become evil. He did not become tainted by the physical, which is really fundamental to dualism, a dualistic way of thinking about things. He he participated in the physical world. I began to write some notes from there. Not going to go into it uh, after all with you, but let me just say, Jesus took joy in physical things. He even went to parties, like physical parties where people were and stuff was and there were good things. And finally, because of his work, In the flesh and his death and his resurrection, all who believe will be given glorified bodies with Christ and will enjoy not only all the sweetness of an awakening and a sight to spiritual reality, but also we will be brought into the physical reality, listen, of the kingdom. New heavens, new earth, forever with God. And we'll see him. We'll see him. Do you get that? Because we'll have eyes. And we'll see him because God the Son is sitting on the throne. In the flesh, we will see our God. Spirituality is really, at the end of the day, the, the confession of the fullness of what is real. It's the admission and participation that there is more to reality than what we can hear, see, and touch. Last week, we considered what it means to be human. I just want to pause on this for just one second, that spirituality is necessary to understand the most basic elements of humanness. To deny that which is spiritual is to deny a whole aspect of who we are, the essence of our being. To deny the spiritual is to deny something that is essential to humanity, that we are body and mind and spirit, that there's a fullness to who we are when God made human beings in his image. Now, as we turn to our text, we're in Acts chapter 
18. We really begin our reading in verse 22, but I'm going to reference a little bit of what's be above it. One of the first things that we see in our text, beginning in verse 22, is that there's something that we do not know. There's something that we don't know. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the middle of the, and I'm going to go at it too, Areopagus, what do you think? Can we roll with that pronunciation? I don't know. Areopagus, this is in Greece, it's in Athens, this great gathering of knowledgeable people to discuss lofty spiritual and religious things. Paul said to the people in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The first thing that that the scriptures would bring to us is sort of the call to admit that it's clear. It's clear and evident if we pay attention for just a couple moments to our culture, our practice, our social interactions, to our religious behaviors, that there are some things we just don't know. It's a call to humility. We all know that there's something that we don't know. There's no, we all know that there's something about reality that our cultural understanding does not have access to. Friends, this is a cultural a people that, that really thought they had a great access to knowledge, a great access to philosophy, a great access to science and spiritual things even. And yet, this people in their culture still had to make an altar to a God that they didn't know. We would do well to maybe develop a little bit of that idea in our own culture. Perhaps we too are prideful. We think that we know many things. Perhaps we ought to write some textbooks that simply are titled, I don't know. And it's blank. Because we just don't know it. There's so much that we don't understand. So much that in our culture and society that we would do well to just admit unknown. The culture of this city had a great access to wealth of science and philosophy and religion, but even with all of this knowledge, they had to confess there's something we don't know. There's a certain wisdom and insight among the people of Athens to acknowledge that ignorance. Friends, it is a wise thing a knowledgeable thing to admit you're ignorant. Now, the Apostle Paul says, now I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul is seeing in all of the idols echoes and signposts. This idea that we've been using, this this image that we've been using from N.T. Wright, Paul looks at them, he sees the way that they are, and he sees an echo of a voice. They know what is real. In all of their religious idolatry, friends, it is idolatry, Paul also sees a quest for spirituality, an admission that there is more than what they can see, hear, and touch. And that quest is to know what they can't see. One of the things that Paul does, he enters into what at Cross Point Coast we call redemptive listening. Perhaps you've heard us use that word before. We call this redemptive listening when we listen to the words of our friends and our neighbors, of our community, of our culture, and we hear what is at the heart 
of their longings and labors. Now, we're not afraid to say that's sin. It's idolatry. It's wrong. It's evil. It's, it's incorrect. We're not afraid to say that. But even as we look at it, we see a longing for something that they have not taken hold of yet. Why do they work so hard? What do they think is wrong with the world? These are questions that we ought to ask when we interact with our fellows and ourselves. Why do we work so hard? What are we working for? What do we think is wrong with the world? What does the culture think will fix that which is broken? Friends, we're talking about the culture's concept of redemption. Really, every culture has a longing for redemption. Every culture has a longing for things to be made right. And really, many cultures have some method and process by which they're trying to make it. Right. We do well to pay attention to these things. Listen for any resonance with what we know to be true about God and his gospel and bring it to bear upon those presses of echoes of longing. Sandy and I have a friend who's a committed intellectual naturalist, okay? Basically the idea that there's only the material things. One day, her young daughter came home from school where evidently she'd had a conversation about something like faith and religion and so on, and her daughter asked her, what is my soul? And our friend simply couldn't bring herself to say, well, honey, you don't have one. You see, that's soul-crushing, literally soul-crushing. How can you tell a kid? You don't, you don't have a soul so much. Really, you see, the kid knows the truth. We all know the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we know truth. We have to have some revelation. We can ask a question, but it requires someone to respond to the question with a reference to revelation. Sandy and I long for the day when our friend will say, well, honey, let me tell you about your soul and to whom your soul's worship belongs. I know this because of revelation. Is her daughter really just carbon atoms? Really just mostly water? Is that all she is? Is there nothing more to her thoughts and emotions than a movement of electrons in a spongy mass that we call a brain? Is that all she is? In our passage, Paul is saying that the Athenians were at least right, even in the midst of all of their idolatry, they were at least right to admit that there is a God that they did not know. Pay attention. That is, all their religious pursuit still brought them short of full engagement with reality. Hear that again. All of their religious pursuit had brought them up short of engagement with the fullness of reality. What's Paul going to do? He's going to introduce them to the one true God that up to this point they did not know, but whose revelation gives us access to reality. When Paul's walking around this place, what does he find? He finds a city that's full of idols. And I would just draw attention to verse 16 before our reading. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He's standing there, and he's, he has eyes to see, right? And his spirit is provoked. And what did he see? He saw a city that was full of idols. Notice Paul's reaction. He's angry. 
at the affront to the glory of God and the lostness of the people. He knows that every idol is an empty and vain thing. Every idol represents the reality of human hearts that were made to give thanks to God, but rather are wandering off after other things. And his heart, his spirit is provoked within him. My question is this for you. What is your reaction to spiritual blindness? Friends, there have been a lot of opportunities to react to spiritual blindness because people are talking more these days than maybe they ought, than maybe you and I ought. There's lots of opportunities to observe spiritual blindness. What is your reaction? Is it anger? Is it pride? Is it a knowledge that you're right and they're wrong? What is your reaction? Or is your spirit provoked within you? Because the Lord is worthy of a worship in this human heart. And this human heart is lost, wandering off after lesser things. For all the data about an increasing percentage in our contemporary culture that are called nuns, you've heard that phrase perhaps, that is no religious affiliation, there is a proliferation of spiritual ideas that are increasing. Our culture is not some sort of secular ideal or religious void. Our culture has philosophies, and we have idolatries. As numerous as there are households, we live in a city that is filled with idols. And the rate at which these new ideas are multiplying makes my head spin. It's one of the things that have been so hard in the last year and a half is that people have been left at home in their homes to just let their minds spin and get super creative about what reality is. Friends, that's not a healthy place to be. We need revelation. Our minds will get super, super inventive and we'll come up with a variety of vain philosophies. And I listen to the news, the new idea for today, the new hashtag, the new cause, the new morality. I think to myself, this isn't a culture in which there is no belief. This is a culture with a multitude of gods. This is a culture that's blown and tossed by every new belief. Literally, the culture itself is just being blown and tossed, and everyone in it is getting seasick. And we're like, I want off the boat, right? We're a mess. We have so many new and competing ideas, but we have no sense of reality by which to evaluate and understand these things because, friends, we're in a city that is filled with, with idols, still. What is idolatry? Isn't it a, a, a vain pursuit of a man-made idea as a means by which we can make sense of the complexities of life? A man-made idea by which to make sense of what we think is real. It's the activities of life that divert us from the worship of the creator by which we have access to real Reality. Idolatry is the invention and then the proliferation and the faith, the trust in a multitude of theories, whether theories of science or psychology or sociology. But faith in these theories is untethered to revelation. That's the problem with idolatry. The idols don't speak, the idols are made. The idols are expressions of ourselves, but the idols can't tell us anything about what we really need to know. The idols can't speak. These theories about where we came from, what our self is, 
what's the basis for human relationships and sociological structures are all man-made creative guesswork. They're quite creative. Some are quite impressive. Some are even relatively close to the truth. But by and large, they reject revelation. We live in a world that claims to know so much, but all that we know is largely untethered from God who has made all things. This is what I mean by the vain pursuit, vain pursuit of man-made ideas as a means of making sense of the complexities of life. Now sure, the Athenians, they cast their idols in gold, literally gold and silver and stone and a variety of materials and the the workers of these things were making so much money, making all these idols and filling up the temples and the households. But we cast many of our idols in university research departments, academic journals, lunch tables and coffee tables, news media and expert elites that serve as sort of the high priests of a new religion. We have all the elements of the creativity of idolatry right here present in our own culture. This is the high religion of our day. What's the commoner's religion? What's the commoner's religion? What's the, what's the folk religion of the culture? Do we not cast our idols on Instagram and Twitter feeds? Now, it's not quite in an academic research department, but we act like it is with the way that we present ourselves with all of our pride and brushed up look worldly pursuits of entertainment, the accumulation of wealth and consumption, that we think in these things that we can discover some value, some meaning, some worth. We can present ourselves as righteous in our variety of social media feeds. Friends, we live in a city that is chock full of idols. And we carry around little idol-making devices. We don't even need to hire the experts. We can do it ourselves. We live in a full city full of idols. Perhaps our homes are filled with idols. We would do well to examine ourselves, to bring this before the Lord, not to be haughty, not to be prideful of our position as Christians in the culture, but we should ask ourselves, are we, are we a people of revelation? Are we a people of some man-made traditional Christianity that ought to be judged by revelation. Which brings us to religion and reality. I just had a conversation with a friend in my living room where he asked, what is religion? Interesting question. I told him that I understand religion to be our way of life and our pursuit of meaning. So the essence of religion is a way of life and a pursuit of meaning. So at this point, I want you to notice I don't have a problem with the idea of religion. I don't have a problem with the idea of religious behavior. It's just a way of life and a pursuit of meaning. And that religion flows out of our understanding of ultimate reality, our worldview. Whatever we think is really, really real will then affect the way that we actually live our lives and pursue meaning in light of what we think is really, really real. Religion, therefore, is a product of how we understand the world. Our religious pursuits flow from our view of reality. It's such an important point. 
See, Paul was able to look around himself at the culture of Athens, and he saw the people's worship. He saw their religion. He saw their devotion. And when he saw their devotion, he saw what drove them. He was able to discern their conclusions about the meaning of life. He saw something about who they are and what they understood about reality. When I look at our culture, I see that we're a very busy culture. We have clutter. We have distractions in every crevice of our lives. Do you realize that our lives are full of these things because there is something that we're pursuing? Where does all that busyness, where does all that clutter come from? Because we have an understanding of reality. There's something that we understand about that which is real, that we fill our lives up with a variety of pursuits. At the end of the day, that is our religion. That is our way of life. Just like the Athenians, our lives are cluttered with idols because we're pursuing meaning and purpose and fulfillment and hope. There's a way that we view the world that shapes the focus of our energies, our use of time and our spending of money. That's our religion. We pursue these things because we believe in them. And we think that in them we can find meaning and purpose and perhaps some sort of salvation in the midst of these things. Are we able to admit that in all of our busyness and all of our daily, nearly ritualistic pursuit of value and purpose, happiness, that we are so often coming up short? That our practical religion, our way of life as a reflection of what we think is really real, that our religion is not measuring up. It's not measuring up to what must truly be real. Friends, we need revelation. We need a challenge from the one who knows to diagnose and transform our understanding of reality that we might live another way. And this is why we need the creator of reality. At the end of verse 23, Paul tells the Athenians that though they have all these thoughts about the world, they still have a sense that there is much that is still unknown. Passed along, saw your objects of worship, found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And he tells them, he's going to tell them what the real reality is, what they are missing. The point is that their view of the world is insufficient to deal with reality. And so Paul is willing to explain to them what they don't know. And what Paul does is he goes right to the heart of what they failed to understand. And what they have failed to understand is that there is a God who made everything. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, isn't served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives mankind all life and breath and everything. Paul goes right to the heart to tell them there is a creator, God. Not a multitude of gods. There is one true God. You may think this thing or that thing about morality, about meaning, about life. But if you have a maker, all things change. Paul points to three things about God. The first is this. God does not live in temples. The Athenians had cast a multitude of idols and then set up places of worship for those idols. Man has made God and then devoted their lives to their own ideas about him. 
That's the nature of idolatry. He isn't served by human hands, though, he says. Why? Because he made you. Your existence is a gift. One of my favorite doctrines of Christianity is the first work of grace. What is the first work of grace? Being. That you are. That all is a gift. Friends, he has served you by letting you be. That's the first doctrine of creation. He isn't served by us, he made us. Let me summarize Paul's argument here for you. You may think whatever you think about God, and based upon your conceptions about God or reality, you may decide in your heart that your life is good and that you're upright and that you are righteous, but you do not get to define reality. You can think that, but it doesn't make it so. Reality made by God and is defined by God. God is not confined to life inside the definitions of the world that you create for him. God does not set, step into your little vain philosophies and religions. God himself is the creator. And you live in his world. The second thing, God made the nations. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having de determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's speaking about the nations. Why does he say this? He's making it clear that he isn't about to share something, some new mythology from a different land about a foreign deity. He's speaking about the God of all of mankind. He's speaking about the God that made all of the nations, not just the God of one of the nations. More than that, Paul is telling them that all of mankind are truly one, one mankind with one common ancestor. We looked at that last week. What is it to be made in God's image, to be made male and female? He created them, and they had names. Adam and Eve. And this erases any sense of superiority that the Athenians surely had with all of their knowledge and understanding and philosophy. There is one God who made all of mankind to descend from one common ancestor. And I can't move forward without making this note that Paul seems to think that the historical, real Adam and Eve are essential to the communication of the gospel. Even in a culture that's antagonistic to such a claim. Athens was not a friendly place to make that claim. And yet he thought it was essential to understanding reality that we understand God as creator, Adam and Eve. And third, God made mankind for himself. Verse 18 says that Paul engaged in conversation with some of their philosophers, right? And in conversation with the philosophers, he found two philosophies that were prevalent in Athens. He, he had a conversation with the Epicureans and the Stoics. And against the Epicureans, he tells them, you don't exist for your own satisfaction. And against the Stoics, he says, there's more to life than a fatalistic survival. But rather, you exist, and it's one of the most bold claims of the Apostle Paul in this passage he says, you exist by God, and you exist for God. Friends, that tells us something 
about our spirituality. It tells us something about the essence of what it is to be us. The fullness of who we are exists for God. Finally, I would just draw our attention to this, that God isn't us. Because God is creator, he cannot be explained merely in terms of creation. And neither can he be relegated to a mere idol of gold or silver or stone. We aren't free to make up God, to philosophize about God and think we will end at reality apart from revelation. God calls us to repent of creative imagination about God. He calls us to submit to the revelation about God and then allow our minds to be full of his revelation. Particularly with the coming of Jesus, we have no excuse for ignorance about God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, all of reality, all that is, created through him and for him. We are not free to imagine God when he has revealed himself to us like this. And this is what we remember in the season, right? It's the the heart of Advent, the longing for God. That longing has been absolutely fulfilled in Christ. We have the image of the invisible God, that which our eyes and ears had no access to apart from his revelation, but he has been revealed. He's come to us, and we've seen him, and we've heard him. And he will judge all rejection of this Jesus, the resurrected king of creation. Which leads us to our final point. It's one of the most important things that we can see in this passage. Paul sort of builds and builds and builds to this moment. What is the relationship between reality and resurrection? Paul's made his argument, he's presented his case, he's laid it out before these intellectual elites. Everything Paul has said up to this point, they're rocking along, like, good words, Paul, great flow, I like your philosophical thought, I can see how it engages with what we're saying, and they've got this sort of, this intellectual jam session going on, they're enjoying themselves, right? His hearers are being entertained. It was new, after all, and they love to hear new things in Athens, and then resurrection. And all of this philosophy that they were enjoying breaks into reality. The apostle says there's this guy who died. Like his flesh gave out its last breath. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He was put in a tomb. He was wrapped and placed there, because he was dead. And then he rose. He makes a spiritual claim about historical reality. It was a claim about Christianity's view of the real world, that these are not two things. This is the fullness of reality, and God effects These things, the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes a claim upon those who hear it to submit to a new revealed reality. And so there is a division 
that arises. There's a division between those who mocked and those who believed. There were some people who wanted to hear more because they were curious. They enjoyed the entertainment in spite of the foolish conclusion. There were many who mocked when it came to the resurrection, but there were a few. There are a few who believed. We've seen this in every place to which the gospel has been preached. Thank God we have a beautiful testimony. And it's an encouragement to all who would proclaim the gospel from this place, right? We aren't just told that some believe. We have their names. I can't pronounce them, but we do have them. <laughs> we have their names. These two men, this woman, and some others with them. They believed. Friends, you know what we're talking about? Their names are brothers and sisters. They heard the news of resurrection. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of this philosophy, all of this talk about creation and idols and unknown gods comes to a head. Is there a resurrected Jesus Christ or is there not? And these names are our brothers and sisters. That's the result. All the vanity and fatalism of the Epicureans and Stoics, it keeps going. And it hasn't. It's gone pretty much unchecked to this day. To this day, we still have the Epicureans and the Stoics. Idolatry is still the rule of the day in Athens and in Brevard County. Still going. But God planted his church in Athens. And by means of of the proclamation of the gospel on that day, and as it's gone out from the variety of places that God planted his gospel, by means of his apostles in those days, it came to us. And his church is here too. Friends, the preaching of the gospel is to bring clarity to minds and hearts of men and women about reality. Something about which we all are on a quest to know. Reality. We want to know. Little girls who come home from school want to know, tell me about my soul. Tell me about my soul. We're creatures made in the image of God. We have some sense that there is a meaning and a value and a beauty and a relationship that is beyond what we see and we hear. We have some sense that there is more to reality than what we can see and hear and touch. And we recognize spiritual reality. Do we recognize that it's essential that we submit ourselves, that we not create a new idea, but rather submit ourselves to God's revelation about himself and about his work in creation, that our understanding of reality will never grow with vain philosophizing, that our understanding of reality will only grow by reflection upon revelation. I think it's worth pausing again there said it a few times already, I think one of the things that has really torn even at the church, perhaps especially at the church the most in this last year and a half, is how much time we've had with our own brain. And this is not a good place to hang out. It's for that reason that so many of the Psalms are the psalmist interrupting his own soul and telling it what to think. And what does he tell his soul? Oh, my soul. He tells his soul the truth that has been revealed. He becomes a prophet, preaching to himself, brain, shut up, humble yourself. There's a reality out there. You've got to submit to it. And that reality 
the greatest reality has spoken and given us revelation. Sit in it. Stay there for a moment. Humble your, you might have something valuable to say, brain. Humble what you have to say under revelation for just a few moments. And then when you do finally say it, still say it with a bit of humility. We have to recognize that we are creatures. Recognize our createdness. We were made with body and mind and soul in the image of God. It was his work. And he is true truth. He is real reality and all else is created by him. And we must recognize that the creator has drawn near to us. He's drawn near to fallen, sinful, idolatrous people right there in the midst of our condition. To take on flesh, to suffer for sinners in our place on the cross, to rise again. We believe that a dead man is alive. Oh, he's more than alive. He sits on the throne of heaven from which he will come to judge the living and the dead and to call the church to himself in a new heavens and earth. Yes, we believe these things. All of these things. This is our hope. This is our Advent longing. This is the longing of all those who will repent of our idolatry and believe in the name of Jesus and so be saved. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the midst of the congregation this morning, that your Holy Spirit would work upon souls, body, mind, and spirit, to impress upon us the truth of reality, to create a curiosity about revelation, and most importantly, to grant the gift of faith, to confess that Jesus is Lord today. Not a moment later, not after a bunch of philosophizing, but to submit to the reality of the resurrected Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would do a work in the whole of your church that we would be buoyed in this confidence, that we would again put off idolatry, even the idols that we confessed during our prayer of confession, and that you would call us to live our religion, our, our way of life together in greater congruence with what is real. Thank you, Lord. We trust you that this is what you will do as creator and redeemer, that this is what you will do in the midst of your church today. And so we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.